Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning. How's everybody? Today, this morning, felt a little bit like a weird day. A lot of people experienced hiccups this morning. Um, that, that may be a really polite way of saying it for some of you. Stuff you went through this morning, um, things just not working right, uh, breakdowns, annoyances, so that maybe you've walked in here this morning and your brain, your heart are just not here in this room in this moment right now. I sense that's the case for a number of us So I want to begin with just a quick word of prayer for you and for my own heart. Can we do that right now? God, we confess that a lot of days start not the way we want. And almost from the first waking moments, we're reminded that we live in a world that is falling apart. And that we ourselves are so imperfect and we're surrounded by imperfect people. We're also reminded that things don't work as they're supposed to so much of the time. And that's just the world that we live in. But you break through that as one bright spot. Whenever it's gloomy, we remember that you are a God whose whole heart is aimed at making broken things whole and dark things come to light. And so we pray for your help this morning, that whatever we have carried in here, whatever our hearts and minds may be feeling right now at this moment, you would break through all of that and help us to be present here with you and with each other right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Dave, if you're new to Harvest. uh, And one of the things that you may notice at Harvest is We don't pass the offering plate anymore. Any of you notice that? So it would be easy to to assume that we just don't give as a church. And in in fact, the truth is, we realize that more than half of our people give online. And so when we did pass the plate, more than half of our people just kept letting it pass. And it looked kind of weird. So we decided to go with an offering box in the back. If you can look all the way to the back of the room where Sandy's standing, Sandy, would you just wave your arms, see it right there? So if you still prefer to give offering with a physical check or in an envelope, you can still do that on the way out. But I want to just remind you, because we don't have a visual moment in the service where we talk about worshiping God through offering, I want to just call your attention to it. We worship God through giving because he is worthy, because it is one of the primary ways that we unroot our hearts from this idol which so easily sinks its roots into us. And so it's one way of saying to God, you are worthy of this and we want nothing else to lay claim to our hearts. We also give because it helps fund a lot of the things we do. In fact, not a lot. It funds everything that we do as a church. It funds our our ministry center, this rental, all this, this new monitor that we got right here to replace the glitchy one that we had. And it also funds outreaches and ministries that touch lives around us. At the end of this month, on the last Sunday of the month, we're going to have an event called Harvest Fest. 
And it, it'll be our, I believe, third annual Harvest Fest. It's the biggest outreach we have all year. And I want to just remind us as we get ready for that day that it's not a fun fest just for our kids. They will think it is because they're going to have such a good time. They're going to lose their minds and be so sugared up, they won't come down till Wednesday. So we don't have to worry about trying to make this a really good event for our kids. It's going to be that no matter what. But where I would ask all of our hearts to be is a lot of guests. I mean, last year, we had nearly 200 guests come into our house, into this building, and just be with us for the first time. It is those folks we especially want to bless and encourage and honor as they come in to let them know that this is a place where the love of God runs freely and that they are welcome in whatever shape and condition they come in. We want to love them and welcome them in Jesus' name. So because that's the case, whatever else happens here, uh, you're going to see a different kind of worship service format than is normal. Um, Please don't write us emails saying, you know, we feel like this should have been different because we didn't feel like we... We're not doing that primarily for every other 51 Sundays a year. We create a worship service for us. But that, that Sunday, we're creating a worship service that we hope is intelligible to people who have never darkened the doors of a church before. We're going to have to use language and formats that make sense to them, and hopefully it will also make sense to us. So as you get ready for Harvest Fest in your heart, would you also be praying for the people that will come and for your own heart that God will make you unusually welcoming and warm? I'm going to ask you to practice that right now because if this is the face you show those people, you've got to encourage me a little bit too. I mean... Can we just practice that unused muscle? I know it's been hard for some of us to smile lately. I get that. But let's just try, because when those folks come in, we want them not to see, you know, like that's just, it's kind of deadening, right? So let's just remember that, be mindful of it coming up to Harvest Fest. And that day, let's ask the Lord to do something in us as well. Well, this morning, I don't know if this is going to, this morning, I'm excited to start a new series, and I've been thinking about preaching from Jonah for at least 15 years, and I just haven't done it because I wanted, to, you know, it's just, just like the Gospel of John, it's the Old Testament book that I really treasured, and I felt like I needed to grow up to be able to preach it. <laughs> I've loved the book of Jonah ever since I became a Christian. I remember the first time I read the Bible through in order to get an Atari 2600 system, my parents bribed me, and ever since then, it was the book of Jonah that arrested me the most, that I said, hey, this doesn't feel like any of the rest of this boring book. This book of Jonah got my attention, and it was so interesting, and every time I read it, I saw different things in it. I have been marinating my brain and my soul in the book of Jonah now for about two months preparing for this, and uh, I've read it probably 50 times. I am swimming in the ocean of Jonah. And I have to tell you, each time I still see things that are so interesting. I think the power of a truly good story is that it's spoken, it's communicated so clearly and simply that even a small child could understand the basic plot. But a great story, a truly great story, also has to have layers of nuance and meaning that continue to unravel and give us a gift as we keep hearing or reading that story 
over and over. I think that's why people who are total fanboys can watch the same movie like 50 times and they geek out delighting to share those weird little nuances with other people who are looking for that because that movie has enough richness to keep delivering those little things. I think that's the power of a truly timeless great story and Jonah is that kind of story. And I've read and listened to a lot of things about Jonah over the last two months but I have to give credit where credit is due because I'm going to completely steal this man's wisdom, this man named Tim Mackey. Some of you may recognize him if you're a fan of the Bible Project, those animated videos and the reading plan and the app that many of us have been using to read the Bible for a year. He used to be a, Portland, a, a, a pastor in Portland, Oregon. <clears throat> and I first lit, heard about his podcast when Stan preached and he referenced this guy's podcast. And I was like, all right, let's check out what Stan's pushing here and I fell in love. This guy is now my favorite preacher in America. And I cannot get enough of his preaching. I just love his preaching. His voice is a little weird. His, uh, the way he talks took a little getting used to, but man, I really, I really appreciate the way he thinks about the Bible and about God. And so his, his preaching series, um, maybe about six years ago in Portland, has really shaped my thinking and my heart when it comes to the book of Jonah. And I will heavily borrow from his thinking in mind. So I just wanted you to know that I'm shamelessly being influenced by another preacher. Please don't send me emails after you do your investigative work and go, I shamelessly am saying, this man completely changed my heart about this book. It really opened me up. What kind of book is the book of Jonah? Well, right away from the first verse, you start to get an idea what kind of book this is. Now, it starts in the same formula that every prophetic book in the Old Testament starts with, pretty much. The word of the Lord came to blank, and it names the prophet. So that's how we know what we're getting is this is a book of prophecy. And in in books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Micah, all those books, they start with exactly. The exact same formula, the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank with the name. But unlike all the other books, what follows then is a record of all the actual prophecies that that prophet delivered. In other words, it's a transcript of their sermon, if you will. But what's weird is right after this first sentence, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, we actually don't get any of his prophecy. Instead, what we get is a story about him. This is weird. This is not a book of prophecy. It's a book about a prophet. He is the story. His life is the message. It's the object lesson, if you will. We know that Jonah, son of Amittai, was in fact a historical figure because he's referenced in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says that he ministered under the reign of King Jeroboam II, who recovered the territories of Israel between Labo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So what you're going to learn about Jonah is when the prophecy God wants to deliver through him promises nationalistic victory, like we're going to get all our land back and it's going to be awesome. We're going to go to war and we're going to win and God's going to make sure and our map will have to be redrawn because our territory will get larger. When it's that kind of prophecy, Jonah has no problem. He's ready to speak for God. 
But we'll discover in the book that bears his name that there was another kind of prophecy he wasn't so eager to be God's voice for. So we know that he is a historical character. But what's really in question now is whether what follows in the book of Jonah is supposed to be taken literally as a historical account or whether it's a narrative parable. Now, narrative parables are stories that are not actual historical accounts. They could have been, they're plausible enough, but they are told fictionally to make a moral point, to teach something about a principle. And sometimes a narrative parable can incorporate historical figures. Just like when Jesus gave a narrative parable in the the New Testament about a dead man, a rich man, and and a dead man named Lazarus who meet in heaven and Abraham, and and they interact. So Abraham was a historical figure, but he's not suggesting, Jesus doesn't mean that that encounter actually took place in the real world. He is making a narrative parable, but referencing historical figures. Now, good, uh, God-believing, Bible-believing scholars on both sides of the aisle are still divided on how to interpret Jonah. It's not clear, and neither has the book of Jonah made itself explicitly clear how we're supposed to take this. It's just one of those weird books that doesn't fit any of the other genres. It's the only book of prophecy that is about the prophet himself, and so I'm not really sure where to land on that either. I know that there's no reason I should deny its historicity. I don't think anything in the story tells me it couldn't have actually happened, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how we're supposed to take it. I think to park on that issue is to miss largely the point of why God permitted the story to get through to us. So I think the story has a different purpose than to establish historicity or the ability to believe in miracles. I think there is a powerful story here, regardless of whether it's historical or parable. The one thing all the scholars pretty much can agree on is there are elements of the story that are clearly ironic or have elements of satire. Now, I know, looking at these guys, you hear those words in English, and you're like, ugh, irony, satire. You remember those genres. What a satire, a good satire, is supposed to do is it's supposed to get characters on the stage that we laugh at or we judge or we look down on. We go, oh, man, look at those idiots. And as we're laughing and judging them, a mirror is being held up to us that says, yeah, but you're kind of like that too. And you're like, oh, my, oh. Oh, my goodness. You're right. We do that, too. That's why it's so funny, because it's true. You know, when you make fun of soccer moms, there's not one mom out there who's like, yeah, those soccer moms, not realizing, I'm a soccer mom, too. Do you realize that we are all guilty of something? And satire is meant to break through those places where we're so wrapped up in ourselves, we can't actually see what we look like to other people, how we affect the world. And a satire is meant to disarm us so that we're, ha, 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 what a jerk, what an idiot. And as we're doing that, we realize, oh, my gosh, I think I've been there, too. I've done exactly that. I need to think about how I'm living. Sometimes a good scolding will accomplish that. But most of the time, it's not until we're laughing at someone else that we realize our own butts are showing. Amen? We know that it's satire partly because of verse 1 itself. We're not even out of verse 1 yet, and we already see the irony. Because Jonah, son of Amittai, literally translates to dove, son of faithfulness. 
Okay? Dove, son of faithfulness. Dove is a bird that even from the oldest of days symbolizes peace, reconciliation. Yet Jonah is the least forgiving, most hateful character in the whole story. And son of faithfulness is hilarious because he's the least faithful character in the whole book. This is an entire story about a man who runs the other way when God calls him, and yet his name literally translates to Dove, son of faithfulness. So we understand that we're supposed to, and we'll find ourselves doing this throughout the book of Jonah. We'll be looking at Jonah going, you're an idiot. What's wrong with you? How can you do that? This is ridiculous. In fact, some of the characters in the story do that very thing. When he's fallen asleep in the middle of a sea storm, the captain of the ship comes down and goes, how can you sleep? How is it possible for you to be asleep in a moment like this? And we're also with them going, I don't understand this guy. What is his problem? And yet here he is, Dove, son of faithfulness, who's supposed to be the central character of the book that bears his name. And here's the thing that ticks Jonah off and starts this whole drama. I'm sorry. I don't know why I didn't put verse 2 on there. I missed the whole slide. Verse 2 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. When God calls the city of Nineveh great, he doesn't mean great like it's awesome. He means great like it's the most important city of the ancient world. It was the capital city of the empire that was without question the most powerful empire in the world of Jonah's time. No one would question where the seat of power was in that part of the world. And the picture is of a God who looks down on his world and he sees that of all the people he's made, there is one group that is causing a lot of real pain and hurt in the world because they are so wicked. And what he's saying is, Jonah, you might think I'm asleep at the wheel. I'm letting all this happen. I am not okay with their wickedness. God, in fact, raised up the Assyrians as a way of casting judgment over his people, the northern tribes of Israel. But what he's saying is, even though I raised them up, They were brutal at a level that I did not sanction. This is their sin. And I am not okay with it. And I'm sending you to go tell them I am not at all okay. The God of the universe is upset at the cruelty that you're exhibiting. During my studies, I stumbled upon a German book by a guy named Martin Zimmerman. Here's the title. You can can see why this got my attention. The title of the book is Extreme Violence in the visuals and texts of antiquity. This guy studied all the ancient texts and all those paintings and and, uh, relief works on stone, and he, he was trying to understand what kind of violence took shape in the ancient world. How creative were these people? And I read stuff in the excerpts from that book, I was consulting the book just to try to get some examples to illustrate for you why Jonah hated the Assyrians so much, why everyone hated the Assyrians so much. They're nicknamed by most scholars of the ancient world as they were the Nazis of the ancient Near East because they did things that were so beyond just conquering. They were evil, cruel people who used their creativity to cause human suffering just because they had the power to do so. And yet I have to confess to you that after reading it, 
I can't use any of the illustrations. In fact, I wish I could wash my brain so I stopped seeing some of the visuals this stupid book created for me. These were not okay people. They were horrible human beings. The stuff they did wasn't just because we are punishing a people. It was because they were power-hungry and twisted and because they had the power to do what they wanted to other human beings. I don't want you to look up this book. In fact, I'm glad it's so hard to find this book. You shouldn't read this book. Just take my word for it that it plums the depths of the human heart and shows us how much darkness actually is in there. You may think you're not capable of doing stuff like that, but that's largely because you've never had that much power over other people. If we all had the power of God's I don't think anyone would be left here. We'd all have killed each other at some point. You die. You're gone. Bam. Ugh. Think about how many abandoned cars there would be on the road as I summarily executed all the bad drivers as I'm making my way to work. It's a good thing we don't have that kind of power, but history has given us a window into what it would look like if we did. And the Assyrians were horrific conquerors. So it was not without good reason that Jonah hated the Assyrians. There wasn't a person Jonah knew whose life had not been marked by the cruelty of the Assyrians. There wasn't a single person Jonah knew who hadn't lost someone or something because of those people. And so when God says, I want you to go there and preach against it, Jonah, it's not his first time around the block with God. He knows what's going to happen. So what does Jonah do when he hears this call? The next verse is also supposed to make us laugh. Jonah ran away from the Lord. Dove, son of faithfulness, ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Where is that? Here's the thing i got to confess to you. The scholars have no concrete knowledge of where Tarshish was. They've been trying to figure out the exact location of this place for centuries now, and they still don't know. But there are some very good consensus guesses as to where it is. It is safe to say that the way the, the, the city of Tarshish was often named in ancient literature is the same way that we talk about Timbuktu. It represents, oh man, on the other side of the known world, dude. It's as far as you're going to get. You can't go past Tarshish. Like If you were at a bar and some guy goes, hey dude, I went west of Tarshish, and everyone's like, oh shut up, you're drunk. There's nothing west of Tarshish. It's meant to be like as far as any of our people have ever gone. I want you to look at this map because... One of the best guesses of where Tarshish is, is in southern Spain. (laughs) And that's where Joppa is, where he boards the boat. And that's where Nineveh is. He's supposed to go about 550 miles that way, which is not a short journey at all. But where does does Jonah go? You you can't be more obvious than that. I'm going to go exactly the opposite of what I'm being told to do here. Because what I'm being asked to do is so horrible, I just refuse to do it. This is interesting because we know for a fact from 2 Kings that Jonah has obeyed God in the past. He's done God's bidding. But in this case, he's saying, what you're asking, I just can't do. I'm not confused that you're asking me. I hear you. I just won't do it. Now, I didn't ask permission, so I, don't, I hope I don't embarrass anyone. But yesterday at a birthday party, a little girl, uh, her name will go unmentioned. But I was trying to get her to eat some food because she was just eating sweets. And I kept saying her name... <laughs> Say, please, sweetie, you got to eat some real food. And normally she engages me. She laughs with me. She plays around with me. But as I try to get her to eat her food, she did this funny thing. She acts like I don't exist. She just went like this. 
And I'm talking and she's not even making eye contact. It's like all of a sudden I've become invisible. It was the, it was the, the most obvious case of, I can't hear you, I can't see you. She just shut me out completely of her world. And effectively, I think she used a superpower to basically disappear me. And so I had this weird experience of talking to another human being and realizing I'm not talking to anything but thin air. And I think this is what Jonah is doing to God. He said, it's not like I don't hear you. I know what you want me to do, but I ain't going to do it. There's just no way. There are things you can ask of me, but that's the limit. You've crossed the line. And, And we've all been there with God, haven't we? I think all of us have been there where he's saying, I want you to forgive and let that go. No way. I can forgive a lot of stuff. But that, I just can't do it. I know what you want. I get it. But I'm not going to go there. I can't bring myself to do what you're asking. And so Jonah's solution is to physically do what his heart has already done. His heart has run off the Tarshish in an instant. His body is now... Catching up to his heart. Do you get the story here? There are a couple other guesses, by the way, just to be fair to the scholars. A couple other guesses are that it was in Sardinia, or it was in the ancient city of Carthage, which is now known as Tunis in Tunisia. Either way, it's about as far west as you're going to get. It's the wrong direction. And do you understand? That's the whole point. Now, why was Jonah so hesitant to go? This would be like asking a Jew at the height of Hitler's power to go to Berlin, get in front of Hitler's face, and say, you suck, man. You're in, for, you're in for it, man. You're going to be in big trouble soon. You're going to get it. And what would happen to a Jew who did that at the height of Hitler's power? So basically, a lot of people thought he's running because this is a suicide mission. It's a suicide. Why would you ask a man to do something this crazy, to go to the heart of power and get in the face of the king and all the people and tell them they're wrong? What's going to happen to the fool who delivers that message. So you could defend Jonah's action as understandable self-preservation. But Jonah himself, later on in Jonah 4.2, explains to us exactly why he ran. We don't have to guess at this. He, he actually opens up his own heart because when he sees that God has chosen to forgive the Ninevites, here's what he says. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Here's what Jonah's saying. I knew that if I went to Nineveh and did what you said, I wouldn't be killed. In fact, no, quite the opposite. It would work, and these cruel, horrible people would be forgiven, and you would let them go, and I don't want to live in a world where people like that are let off the hook. I refuse. I won't live in a world or with a God who will let that slide. I just can't bear it. The world I want to live in would be better if people like that were killed, spent eternity in a burning hell. That would feel like a right world, and that would feel like a God I want to follow. I cannot follow a God who would let them off the hook like that. And yet Jonah knew that this God he follows was nothing like him. That though he hated what the Assyrians had done, this God is so slow to anger, abounding in love. He's compassionate. And he has this annoying habit of forgiving people who've done bad things. 
So Jonah says, I would rather run from you and take the punishment than live in a world where we have to forgive people like them. I think Jonah's attitude points to the heart of what disobedience is. Disobedience is not primarily breaking a rule. That's the way we're always taught that as kids. Don't break the rules. Here's the heart of disobedience is this. We have our own view of what is good in the world, what's right for us to do, what makes sense. And most of the time, happily, if we're Christians, what makes sense to us, what seems right to us, also is agreeing with what God says is right. So on Sunday morning, though we'd rather sleep in, like this morning, I really, really, guys, seriously, you guys, I really struggled to get out of bed this morning. I was like, dude, if I were not the pastor and I had to preach, I would not go to church. I think I would actually fail that test. I, I want to sleep so badly. And I drag myself out. And I think most of the time, what we, what we want to do, what we end up doing, agrees with what God wants, so we're all good with God. And sometimes we find out that what we want and what God wants don't agree, and we have a couple options. What we often do is we either pretend we didn't hear that part. I'm sorry, I didn't know you you asked me to do that, honey. Yeah, you did. Come on, husbands, you heard. She said, pick up celery on the way home. Oh, I totally didn't hear. You totally heard and you forgot. Just admit it. So we act like we didn't hear him, or we change what he said to make it easier for us to bear. So we reinterpret what God said so that it's easier for us to swallow this bitter pill. And I suppose there's some latitude because no one group can have a complete monopoly in saying, this is exactly what God said and meant, and you have, if you disagree with us, you're not a good Christian. I don't think one group has the authority or ability to put that kind of word out there. The Bible is a living document. We're meant to struggle with it, to interpret it, to wrestle with it all of our lives. And one day we'll all get to heaven. God will be like, okay, you guys were here. You were right on this, wrong on that. Woo, you were really wrong on that. Let me teach you the real truth. I think he'll do that for all of us. And most of us will be very surprised. But no matter how you wiggle out of it, if you still have any concept of God at all, there will come a point in your life where what God wants and what you want cannot be made to agree. That's just the bottom line. If you feel like God never has a problem with you and you never have a problem with God, like you're always agreeing, you're always with him on every page, you're doing it totally wrong. You cannot maintain that kind of relationship with God without being totally deluded about who God is or who you are. Because that's like saying, I, everything I ever think and do, I agree with God, the perfect one. Which is another way of saying, I think I'm perfect. That's so horrible, guys. You can't, you can't, do, you can't think that way. And yet you can also have such a deluded view of God that you think everything I believe, God believes. Yay for us. I want to believe this about God, so I'm going to make God like that. You've got a delusion about God. At some point, as with every relationship in your life, you're going to come to a point where you love that person, but you don't agree. Can you say amen if you have a person in your life that you really, truly love, but you don't agree with them all the time? Can you please just comfort me by saying amen so I don't feel like the only one? Amen? If you didn't say amen, you're a liar, and I know your story. Such a liar. Just because we love someone doesn't mean we'll always agree. So the question is, what will you do at that fork in the road when you want to do it this way and God says, I know, but you got to hear me. I want you to go this way. You have a decision to make. 
And moments like that reveal our true view of God and who he is to us. And when we decide, I know you're saying it, I hear you, because remember, that was never Jonah's issue, was that he didn't hear. He knew exactly what God wanted. He just couldn't accept it. So he went, I hear you, and mm, like the little girl yesterday, talk to the hand, because I'm not listening anymore. You stopped existing to me. I cannot listen to you, because if I do, I'm going to get madder and madder and madder and madder. I just, in order to maintain my relationship with you, I have to ignore you and deafen myself to you and numb my heart to you. Otherwise, I'm going to start hating you. Because what you've asked does violence to who I want to be. Jonah decides that he's going to numb his heart. And though he can hear God, he refuses to actually accept what God is saying. And so he goes to the port city of Joppa, he books a ticket, and he goes as far away from where he's supposed to go as he possibly can. Now here's a great thing about our God is he doesn't let us run away so easily. You know, I watch a lot of um, dramas about broken people. I'm kind of drawn to those kinds of stories, because I think they teach me. Here's what I'm doing all the time when I'm watching shows like that. I'm counseling and pastoring. I'm like, what would I say to them if they were in my church? And it's really good practice for me. And sometimes I have no idea what I'd say. I'm just so sad along with these people. What a terrible situation they find themselves in. And what I love about God is there are these moments in those dramas where someone says something so foul, so offensive, so final. They're like, that's it. They drop the mic and I'm leaving And the other person's left like, all right, I could fight for you, or I could be like, good, just get out of here then. Good riddance. Right? And and in my heart as an audience member, sometimes I'm like, that was so foul what they said to you. Let them go. Spit in the air as they leave. How can anyone do that? And yet what I see that always shocks me and surprises me is that someone in that, that situation goes, wait, 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 don't go yet. Let's work through this. And it's, in a weird way, as an audience member, so unsatisfying because I want to see a good fight. I want to see, like, this untying of the knot as someone just vomits emotionally and goes, get the heck out of here. I hate you. You're horrible. And everyone in the audience is like, yes, finally, they got their just dessert. But instead, there's grace given. And this is so weird because this is in secular drama. But they understand that no relationship will survive if we do that to each other. For a relationship to endure, you've got to be willing to say at the very moment when you want to spit someone out of your mouth, I'm not going to let you go that easy. I'd love to, trust me, emotionally I would love to boot you out of my life, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say what makes my skin crawl, and I'm going to say, get back here. Come on, don't run. And so what you see is though Jonah looks right at God and says, nope, I'm not going to do it. God continues to chase Jonah over and over and over. A number of times throughout this story, God is going to be hard-charging after Jonah to say, don't you dare run. I'm not going to make it easy for you. You keep coming towards me. And so God sends, what's the best way to get someone's attention when they're sailing on an old ship? You, you, You send a storm. That This story jarred my attention when I was younger because my greatest fear in this whole world is dark, stormy seas. 
And when I think about Jonah saying at one point, throw me over like that, I die before I hit the water. It just, it's too much for me. I, it overloads my circuits. And God sends a storm so great that even these seasoned sailors are freaking out. You know, most veterans, they try to act cool. You know, see the guys on the deadliest catch, they're like, whoa, whoa, and, and they're telling their cameras, like, hey, this is nothing, I've seen this before. But every once in a while, in their eyes, you see a flash of real fear, like, shoot. <laughs> You're like, oh, so even that guy, there's a limit where he goes, oh, this is not a normal storm. I'm actually kind of scared. And that's when you get nervous because you don't know what you're doing. But when the veteran starts to get nervous, you also get nervous. That's what's happening here. These veteran seamen, these sailors are saying, this is no normal storm. And you got to understand, merchant marines do not ever throw things overboard. That's their whole livelihood. They're paying for everything, all the supplies, the crew, everything, out of what they're going to make when they deliver their cargo. So you don't throw your cargo overboard unless you know this is the end. Fred Sanford, oh, this is a big one, Elizabeth. I'm coming to join you. They know they're going to die, so they're taking their livelihood and saying, I'd rather be broke than dead. This is going. And they throw it overboard. So that's what's happening. And as all of this is going crazy, the waves are coming, the wind, thunder, lightning, rain, and every man on the ship is freaking out, full alarm freak out. And then it says, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. I think that's supposed to be a picture of something deeper than just sleeping because I, I don't know that you can actually sleep. Have you, if you've ever been on a, a boat in rough seas, even if you're not normally seasick, right, it's going to get to you. I felt it. And I have an iron stomach. I, I haven't puked since 1976, guys. So I've got... This is like... Cast iron man stomach right here, but I felt it where like, oh, there's no way this guy's just sleeping because he's tired. This is a metaphor also for something else. See, at that point where you say to God, I hear you, but I refuse, if you want to have any kind of semblance of a relationship with God at all, you have to deafen your ear to him. You have to numb a part of yourself to say, I know that's what you want, but I'm just going to pretend for now. And the way we've learned to excuse it because we've given each other this language in modern culture is, I'm still processing it. Processing it is sometimes real processing, but a lot of the time, processing is a way of saying, I'm not going to deal with it now. I'm just going to dig in and be what I want and tell everyone else I'm processing it. Processing, real processing, is actually a very active, costly process. Did I just use the word to define the word? Okay. <laughs> but you get what I mean in a technical sense. Processing properly done is not a trivial thing. Delaying, putting off, ignoring, numbing, that's not the same as processing. And a lot of us do that to God and to other people. I'm just not going to deal with it right now. Please just don't talk to me. I can't right now. And sometimes I'm going I'm to just tell you, we do need to do that to get a little buffer. But you're not supposed to do that for months and years. And so as you do that, you have to continue numbing yourself. You have to continue deafening yourself. And after a little while, what starts to happen is something goes to sleep in your soul. Something starts to stay asleep. That thing you keep numbing becomes permanently numb. And so this sleep 
that Jonah is in reflects a state of spiritual apathy that happens to us when we consistently make the choice to pretend that we don't hear what God is saying. Refuse to deal with this thing which he's telling us. And it's easy to say, well, it's not about me and God, it's about me and that jerk. I can't forgive them. I have no problem with God. I just cannot forgive them. But it is a problem with God because God's saying, but I want you to forgive them. It's important to me that you do this. It's important to you that you do this. And I am not being vague when I tell you this. God is clearly saying, and we say, I won't hear that. And the more you do it, the number your heart becomes. And so at some point, there could be a storm raging around you, and you're oblivious to what's happening. I've seen this actually happen in the lives of people I love. And here's the interesting thing about when we decide to run from God, it's not just a private choice. We're almost never the only ones who get hurt. These sailors are literally going to die because this guy on their boat, this stowaway, is running from his God. When we continue to run from God, eventually what that starts to turn us into is what Tim Mackey would call a relational wrecking ball. We are not just hurting our relationship with God, but it is spilling over into our relationship with other people. And yet, if you get numb enough, you don't even realize how much damage you're doing to the people around you. I've seen this happen so many times. I'll give you some scenarios where I've seen it happen. I've seen racist parents who cannot accept that their child is going to marry someone from another race, so they dig in their heels and go, no, I will not bless that marriage. And I look at that couple and I think they are a perfect match, spiritually, relationally, psychologically. The only thing they don't have is the same ethnicity. And yet those parents refuse to give their blessing and it begins to just crush the heart of those people. I've seen families torn apart by an addiction where a person says, this is a victimless crime. Mind your own business. This has nothing to do with you. It's my personal struggle. And they are numb and oblivious to the fact that their private addiction is ripping apart an entire family. That, that, that is costing everyone around them. There are children whose spirits are being crushed because their parents have unconfessed idols in their hearts that they can't let go of. This thing that I'm pushing you to do is not important for you. It's important for me. I need you to do this, to accomplish this, to look like this, so that I can brag about you. And I've seen parents crush the spirit of their children because they cannot let go of an idol that God is saying to them, let go of that. Love your kid. And I've seen churches watch their world burn because they want to pretend that nothing's wrong out there. That all we have to do is pray and read our Bibles and everything will be okay. That we're not dealing with racism and social breakdown, poverty, injustice, crime, corruption everywhere. And I've seen churches watch the world burn as we refuse to let God open our eyes and our hearts to what's actually happening all around us. Our private running has victims beyond us. So the sailors do a smart thing. They're like, okay, something's really wrong. We're smart enough to realize as as sailors, this is not a normal meteorological storm. This is something of divine origin. 
which one of us is responsible. So they cast lots, and they find out this guy named Jonah is responsible. So like, where is he? And they find him, and they say, tell us who is responsible. That's one of those rhetorical questions. They know it's him, so they just wanted to fess up. Uh, tell us, man of God, prophet, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answers, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. And right there, I just want to scream, no, you don't. You identify with the Lord on the Census Bureau form. You check off the Lord as your religion, but you don't actually worship the Lord. You say you follow him, but where are you heading right now? How can you be a Christ follower when you don't follow Christ? In the midst of open rebellion, how can you say this to other people? I identify as one who worships Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. And then he says this to them. I worship the God of heaven. And guess what he did? He made the sea and the dry land. And at this, what did they say? What would you do if you were they're like, this terrified them. They asked, what have you done? See, he had already told them back in Joppa when they asked him, why is he, where is he, why are you going to Tarshish? Are you a merchant? You have no cargo. No, I'm actually a, a man of God, a religious man, but I'm running away from my God. And probably all these guys, rough kind of men, they're like, ah, he's running from his God. That's hilarious. We like men of God like you. That's cool. They thought it was all laughs and giggles until they realized the God this fool is running from is the one who made the ocean, and he's going to get us all killed. We're going to die because of his rebellion. So finally, Noah says, or Jonah, I keep saying Noah, sorry. Jonah says, okay, as the sea is getting rougher, he says, guys, here's what you're going to do. If you really want to live, you got to throw me overboard. Pick me up and throw, I can't imagine ever saying those words, even if I know I was supposed to. Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault. And this is, the, this is what I love about Jonah's. At least he's got the courage to own it. He goes, you know what? I know it's my fault. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to justify it, excuse it. I know that what he's asked me is unacceptable, and I know it's my fault. So just, it's my fault that you're in the storm. Throw me overboard. You'll be fine. Now, scholars are very divided on what this, this uh, willingness to die Basically, Jonah's saying, kill me, kill me. Why did he say that? One possible explanation is he so, this reflects remorse, okay? He realized he had done wrong and caused hurt to so many others. He's saying, I deserve the punishment. Just throw me overboard. That's probably justice, and we'll be all good. God will be square. But another interpretation is that this represents the ultimate resistance, If I can't get on a boat and run to Tarshish, then the ultimate way is to just completely check out. There's no greater running than dying. Just kill me and I won't be able to go to Nineveh and deliver the message. I try to run far. Now let me just stop running and be a person who can't do at all what God is asking. I suspect, though I can't confirm, that the second interpretation is correct. That sometimes we get to a place where we realize I can't reconcile what I'm doing and who I want God to be and who I want to be. 
but I won't go where I know I'm supposed to. So I would actually choose death over obedience. We, we think along with Jonah that we're running for our lives. But as Tim Mackey said so powerfully in the sermon, we're not running for our lives, but we're running from our lives. That the thing God is trying to get us to do is not his way of crushing us, but of involving us in something that is actually a greater life than the world we're building. I got to end here, so I want to show you the irony, the satire here is this man of God finally says, Throw me overboard. I don't even care about my own life anymore. Just whatever. It's like the ultimate whatever. Just, just kill me. And these sailors are like, No, we're not going to. Let's, let's see, guys. Let's rally. Come on, men. Fighting. Let's try to row back to shore. And they try. If you ever rowed on calm water, that's hard enough. There's no way they're going to make it. And after a while, they're like, this is not working. I think we have to do it. But look at the conscience of these men. They're not so willing to kill another man. Even if it could save theirs, the one group of people with a conscience in the story are pagan sailors, unbelieving sailors. And the man of God doesn't have the same conscience and concern for other people. Then, here's the interesting thing. They cry out to the Lord. Now, they're not crying out to their gods anymore. This is the first prayer recorded in the book of Jonah directed to the living God of Israel. And it's not, it's not prayed by Jonah the prophet. It's prayed by unbelieving sailors. That's even further irony. That the first people to offer up a prayer in this whole story to God are people who don't even know God. And why are they praying? Even before they sin, they're asking for forgiveness. We're going to kill this dude. We have no choice. Our hands are tied. You know this, right? He even gave us permission. Please don't hold this against us. And they confess before they sin. Here the man of God is. He will not confess even after he has sinned. And so little by little, we're seeing this picture painted of a man named Jonah who was in title and position, arguably the most godly man on that boat the most godly figure in the whole story, and he's the least godly in what he does. I'm so afraid of falling asleep at the wheel and becoming such a man someday. And I pray regularly that God will keep my heart humble because it's not that hard to become that person. And throughout this story are all the people who are not supposed to act like this And they turn to God so quickly. They throw him overboard. The sea grows instantly calm. And they go, we've been praying to the wrong gods all our lives. This is the real deal. And they are in awe. And they begin to fear the Lord. Which means they now begin to see him for who he truly is. And they begin a life of worshiping and pursuing this God. And all the while, Jonah's not even involved in their conversion. As a result of his doing nothing but being willing to die, God converts and saves every person on that boat. He reveals himself to all of them. And yet Jonah's not responsible. He's not a part of that story in any meaningful way. This continues to show us that whether we participate actively or not, God still has a heart for people, but we are missing out on the joy and the thrill of being a great part of God's redemptive plan.
I'm going to end with this. <clears throat> At some point in your life, God's going to call you to something that feels like he's trying to ruin the party for you, to rob you of your life and your joy. It's going to feel like what he's asking of you is an unbearable burden, and if you obey him, something in you is going to die. That's what it's going to feel like. But the truth is that what he's really trying to do is not kill you, but remove something that is killing you. I know that to forgive that person you cannot forgive feels like something like justice is going to have to die in you. But that unforgiveness is the very thing which is killing you. When I was working in surgery, I remember this woman came in. She had this huge distended belly. And I asked the doctor, what's wrong with her? Because why would we be performing a surgery like this, removing something from a pregnant woman? He said, oh, she's not pregnant. She has a tumor in her abdomen. It's the size of a watermelon. Now, the reason it got so large is because for the longest time, she believed she was pregnant and that that was a baby that was growing. And so she delighted over this thing. She protected it. She ate extra. She was, she was doing all the things that a, a good pregnant woman should do to care for a child. And she was all the while nurturing and feeding the very thing which was going to kill her. <clears throat> she finally came to see the doctor when after 10 months the baby didn't come out. And the doctor saw her and immediately ordered her to the ER. And it was my job as the lowest-ranking member of the surgical team to carry this tumor in a giant basin down to pathology. And it was heavy. And I thought, wow, what irony in this to nurture and protect this thing you thought was a blessing. Give it life, protect it, don't let this die. And all the while, it was the very thing killing you. And to have it ripped out was not a loss, but it was the beginning of her life. You know, we're going to face that fork in the road where God is going to ask us to do something that feels like he's taking away something important. We've got to make a choice. Will I numb myself to him, become a wrecking ball in the life of others, cause storms everywhere I go, while in the meantime, I'm so numb, I'm asleep below decks as everyone else is watching life fall apart. Do I want to become that person? Or will I choose the path of obedience even though the obedience feels like a kind of death? I don't think we can make that choice just because we see God's authority. I think we also have to see His great love for us that he can be trusted, that he's with us, he's for us. That he's not trying to hurt us through that decision. He's actually trying to save our lives. I believe that this choice was most beautifully and most powerfully modeled for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. I remember his anguished prayer in Gethsemane. If there's any other way, please take this away from me. But in the end, he said those words that we long to be able to say. 
but so often can't. Not my will, but yours be done. Most often, we fail to make that choice to say those words. But because he succeeded where we failed, it's not just a good example. It is what makes it possible for us increasingly to obey. Because in the cross of Jesus, what we see is that we don't serve a God who tries to harm us through his commands, but tries to give us life through his commands. So I'm going to leave you with that. We're going to leave the story of Jonah, I hope like a good drama where the last scene makes you have to tune in for the next episode because Jonah is now thrown overboard and that should be the end of this tragedy. Rebellious man, finally identified, thrown overboard. The sea is calm. All are saved except for the guy who deserved to get it. But it's not the end of the story. And we're going to see next week where the fish enters the story and why that's so important. For now, I want to leave you with this. Are you actively numbing the voice of God in your life? Because what he's saying to you is hard for you to hear. Maybe the word he's saying to you is stay. Repent. Forgive. Follow. Sacrifice. Maybe that word is so hard to hear, so you are suppressing his voice. I ask you in the name of Jesus this morning to stop doing that. Because if you keep doing it, something inside of you is going to fall asleep. I also want you to know that when you are in that place of running from God, a lot of other people are getting hurt around you too. And one of the ways God may wake you up is if you really start to hear what those people are saying to you. I think that hits pretty close to home and there's nothing left I need to say. I'm going to invite you to be quiet for just a moment and let God say some things to you. Just after a couple moments as he whispers to your soul, we'll sing a last song close our worship service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.